Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In this week's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted interviews the one and only Dr. William R. Miller, Emeritus Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. Dr. Miller joined the university in 1976, and his publications include 40 books and over 400 articles and chapters. Dr. Miller is also co-founder of the Motivational Interviewing Approach to Counseling, and according to the Institute for Scientific Information, he is one of the most highly cited scientists in the world. Without further ado, let's listen in. I don't have a problem. I only had three drinks that night. I don't drink every day. I've got this completely under control. I don't drink that much. Get off my back. No one understands. I don't need to be here. My probation agent made me come here. Come on. These are some of the typical responses with someone struggling with alcohol and or drug addiction. I've heard these statements a million times over as an addiction counselor. Yet I know it is natural for people struggling with an addiction to deny it, bargain with it, and even relapse. As dysfunctional as that sounds, it is actually a normal part of the recovery process. Yet as counselors, we see it plain as day and want to help this person. Yet this person doesn't want to accept our help. We might even rationalize it out as thinking, well, this person just isn't ready for treatment and send them on their way until they are ready. Or some counselors might even get so tired of working with these unmotivated clients that they throw up their arms saying treatment just does not work. But what if there was such a person who actually liked these clients and fell in love with the art of listening? He listened and listened and eventually discovered something that actually works. Andy even started to train these therapists in the art of listening and change talk. Well, I have the wonderful Bill Miller with me today. Um, it's really an honor. He's uh, one of my heroes, and um, I had a chance to see him in person maybe about six months ago in Montreal, and he's very soft-spoken, but so knowledgeable and so helpful to so many people. So with great honor, I'm going to ask Bill the ultimate question, which is, are you ready to rock Recovery Nation? Works for me. All right. <laughs> Oh, well, great. Well, it's good having you on the show. Once again, my honor, Bill. And I'm hoping that our listeners will gain uh, some something, at least a gold nugget here or two, or maybe uh, 10 or 20 gold nuggets. And we're going to be really speaking to people in recovery as well as healthcare professionals. So, um, I guess maybe what you could do to start us off, Bill, is tell us maybe a little bit about yourself and how you got into the business of counseling and motivational interviewing. I was at a veteran's hospital, and they said, go to any interests you. You can spend the summer there. And there was an alcoholism unit there, and the director said, what do you know about alcoholism? And I said, nothing, really. And, well, what did they tell you in graduate school? And I said, I'd... He said, well, you better spend the summer with us because this is the second most common diagnosis that you'll see through your whole career. 
Um, and so I did, um, and spent that summer pretty much listening to people uh, on the unit, people who were patients there. And this was an inpatient unit, um, pretty severe alcohol dependence. And they really taught me uh, the, about alcoholism. Um, more important lessons than I got from the literature at the time, actually. I really patients. Um, I put a Carl Rogers hat and listened because I didn't know anything. Um, and that turned out to be a good approach. Um, then when I began reading the literature, it said alcoholics are impossible people. They're pathological liars. They're in denial. They're probably immature and um, extremely defensive. I thought those, those don't sound like the same people I was talking to. And it was the beginning for me of sorting out how important the way in which you work with people is possible to work with people in a way that produces very defensive and, uh, you know, in, in denial kind of people. But that's not in the personality of folks with substance use disorders, which was the belief at the time. There, there really is no consistent personality. We're all as different as snowflakes. Um, so I got off to a good start just by listening. Well, that is awesome. Awesome. So listening is really uh, some of the key in all this, or maybe the main key. Well, it turned out to be a lot more important than I even appreciated in the beginning, because uh, having been trained in both a person-centered approach and of behavioral therapy, I was teaching my students uh, and kind of upcoming therapists both of those things. And in early studies, we were looking at the extent to which both people were delivering behavior therapy the way it was supposed to be done, and the extent to which they were listening well. And we, we had in our laps uh, the, the accurate empathy scale by Truex and Clark, two of Roger's students. And found to my surprise was that we could predict two-thirds of the variance, most of the variance, in treatment outcome from how well the therapist was listening, how well the behavior therapist was listening while doing behavioral treatment. And that was a much bigger effect than differences between different approaches that we were uh, we were trying out. And it said there's something important here about reflective listening. Even two years later, it was still predicting 25% of the variance in a very behavioral outcome, the number of drinks per week. Um, uh, and so that got my attention uh, when I went off on my first sabbatical leave to Norway. And that's where motivational interviewing happened. That's where this, this idea began to emerge through patients with my colleagues there. So where did this thing called motivational interviewing all start? Did someone just like dream it up? Is it based on basic principles or is it like one of those super complex things? that like nobody understands. Does the therapist actually try to make the argument for change with the client with let's say substance use issues? Or does the therapist through careful listening help the client make the argument for change? If that was the case, what a relief. Or uh, just about kind of the beginning of motivational interviewing because I have so many therapist friends and they heard I was going to be interviewing you. And they're like, 
you know what? You have to ask Bill how it all like sort of like came to be in maybe it's like first decade. And I said, maybe he has like some cool stories that nobody's ever heard of or something like that. So they were like wanting to know that. So I said, you know what? If I get him on a podcast, I'm going to ask him that. Well, I've I've told these stories in print, actually, but but they're still not widely known. But but I was working at an alcoholism clinic in Norway, near Bergen, Norway, and I was there hired hired to teach behavioral approach to treating alcoholism. But I was also meeting at the director's request with a group of psychologists who were there uh, doing their best to treat people with pretty severe alcohol dependence. Um, and some of whom were relatively recently out of. So the director said, uh, why don't you just have some discussions and see what happens? So began meeting every other week or so with this group of psychologists. And they wanted me to, sh- to demonstrate the way in which I would be working with people like the folks that they were seeing. And fortunately, they spoke very good English, so we could role play in English. <laughs> And as we did that, as, as I just did the kind of talking to people that, that I had developed over time, uh, they would stop me and say, what are you thinking now? Which is a, a fascinating question. And my own students in America didn't ever ask me that. Uh, well, you, you told us about reflective listening. Now, the client said a lot of different things. Why did you reflect that? rather than something else that the client said. Or you, you could have asked a lot of different questions. Why did you ask that particular question? And they were trying to get out the way, get out of me the way in which I'm thinking or, or making decisions about what to do next in counseling. And, and together, that, I mean, they literally evoked from me this method that we gave the name motivational interviewing. Which, which was not a whole lot like the lectures I was giving in the next room. Uh, <laughs> so this is where I was actually doing it. Um, and it, it had to do with arranging the conversations so that it's the client who makes the arguments for change rather than me. Uh, I, I would rather assiduously avoid telling people what their problem was and what they needed to do about it. And instead, with curiosity, wanted to know what they thought about all this and and how they would go about making changes. Um, and in meeting what we used to call resistance, you never push against it. You, you never disagree with it or argue with it because uh, that just strengthens it. Um, and the other thing was really to support self-efficacy or hope that that it is possible to make these changes, which is certainly what the research says. And so that style of working with people, which came naturally to me, having been trained in Rogers, is what I was doing while I was also doing behavior therapy. Um, And a description of that clinical style is where the original 1983 paper came from. Wow. So it's been kind of like an I love hearing the story because it's kind of like an evolution. And I know just my making my way through the therapy world over the last like 20 some years, I think about like when I first started out versus kind of where I'm at now. And you're really talking about like 
um, I appreciate listening almost more now than I did in the beginning. And you kind of like really learn the value of that. And so I supervise um, some therapists who are kind of starting out. And I'm always curious because you've been in the, I call it the business for a while. Um, what would be <laughs> 35 years? That is, like, And let me tell you, just spending time with you, you were like, how many years? Well, 1973, I guess, really. So it's, it's you know, 40-some years. You know, we're, the fact that you started in 1973, I want to add that up and give you full credit because that's like 44 years out in the field you've been. I think a lot of therapists have gotten a lot of advice when dealing with so-called court-ordered unmotivated clients. You know, the type of clients that don't really want to be in counseling but are sort of forced to. Like, I wonder what this guy, Bill Miller, would tell them. Because, you know, they're not going to listen. Or, just maybe, these clients might be their own best expert. And if you did like a group with all of them, you might have a group full of experts. And what if we actually listen to them? What might we find? I'm going to give a shout out to all these beginning therapists out there. And if you were to start over again, if you were like one of them today, and you just got out of your social work or counseling program, and you're kind of setting off and to the, to, to the big yonder um, in terms of trying to help people, what would, mm-hmm. what would be your advice or what would have you maybe done differently? <laughs> Humility. Humility. I love it. Uh, I mean, we spent a lot of time studying matching, you know, how to how to match people with the best treatment for them. And the truth is, we're terrible at it. <laughs> I love that. And people, then we know what they need. Now, you certainly bring some expertise with you, but it's it's realizing there are two people in the room with expertise if you're just seeing one person. Uh, and and the client that you're seeing knows more about him or herself than anybody else in the world does. And if what you're wanting to do is to help them make changes with their lifestyle, which is what addiction treatment is about, you need their expertise as well. Um, you need their sense of what's going to work for them and how they would do it and, and what's going on and so on. And, and that tool of reflective listening right out of Carl Rogers, 1940s, 1950s, you know, turns out to be one of the best markers of success in helping people to overcome addictive behaviors. Uh, it's, it, it's the most evidence-based practice I can think of um, because the effect sizes are, are often quite large. Within any evidence-based manual-guided treatment approach that you may have learned, there are enormous varieties uh, there's enormous variance in the outcomes of clients based on who treated them. And you cannot separate a treatment from the person who's providing it any more than you can separate a race car from the driver or, or a meal from the chef who prepared it, you know. So this idea that we have homogeneous treatments that are manual guided is a myth. Uh, they're, they're, they're highly variable depending on the style and the, the way in which the person provides the treatment. So like... So, Listen well and, and uh, 
and remember humility that the person sitting with you knows more about them than you do. Oh, I absolutely love that. I so love that statement. So you, so I sat in like zillions of intensive outpatient groups, you know, between 2000 and 2010. And we would kind of deliver the same type of program, same type of skills to everybody. Uh-huh. And I think like what you're... T- <laughs> You know, it's almost like this cookie cutter approach. And I see that so much out in the field. And I, I don't know, I just want to go off the cuff here and ask you what you, what, what's your take on that and what's your thoughts on that? Well, if you're doing group therapy, you got a room full of experts. And, and taking advantage of that, I mean, liberating and evoking their own wisdom is, is very possible. So you, you can do motivational interviewing in a group setting, and it's really a way of doing groups. But having standard content that you're dispensing is a waste of time. Uh, If there's anything that we know doesn't work, it's lectures and and education. Um, And conveying skills, that's sort of the heart of behavioral approaches. Um, But it's interesting that outcomes in behavior therapy seem to be unrelated to whether people actually learn the skills or use them. There's something else going on besides conveying skills. So, I mean, my behavioral training was sort of, I, I have what you need and I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a, it's a deficit, a deficit model that the reason our clients are struggling is they lack something that we need to install into them. Um, motivational interviewing, the fundamental message is you have what you need and together we're going to find it. And that's a, that's a different approach. And you can blend those two together, actually, because the things that we've learned from research with uh, behavioral approaches are useful. They're tools that people can use, but the same tool doesn't fit everybody. And so taking a standardized lecture skill training approach, to me, is, is, is pretty much a waste of time. <laughs> we've done it for so many years, though. <laughs> the, the director of Hayes asked, how long does it take to deliver all the lectures that you have to deliver? And it was 28 days. <laughs> and that's how the company set the original length of inpatient treatment for the number of lectures that needed to be given. Uh, unfortunately, lectures don't help. You mean I can't change someone? Even if they have an addiction? Why not, like, install solutions into them? Or maybe even try making them feel bad about themselves. Then they'll really get it. Really? Or will I get burned out? How have you... Because you've been out in the field a long time, and, you know, having lunch with you, watching you speak... Um, reading your books, watching your videos, all that good stuff. You are just like the kindest, gentlest soul I've ever met, Bill. And you seem so fresh still, and you're so still inquisitive. You want to learn more. And one of the things that I've really kind of come up against with a lot of my colleagues I've seen over the years is how high the burnout rate is in the business. Mm -hmm. Um, I see a lot of agencies just 
having people see just so many, so many people and a lot of therapists kind of reaching out and saying, Ted, I don't know if I can see another court ordered person. I don't, I don't know if I can handle this kind of caseload anymore. Um, and I was just curious about your experience. If you've had experience in that realm, like what's your thoughts on it? Well, first of all, I, I love seeing court ordered people. You know? <laughs> uh, they, they come with lots of energy, fight in them, and and uh, I mean, there was one study that the the level of uh, defensiveness was related to the level of recovery. You know that that people had more fight in them actually did other folks do. Uh, but the burnout thing is real, and I think it it has to do with the mindset that you bring to treatment. If your mindset is that you're the expert and you have to make people change, uh, that's an impossible task. You can't make people change. If you have to come up with all the right answers, that's a terrible burden because the person who has the right answers is sitting across from you. you know? So if, if you go home having wrestled all day trying to defeat people, outsmart them and out-wrestle them and overcome their defenses and so forth, you go home angry and, and frustrated and feeling like you know, they didn't go very well. If you do the same practice with a beginner's mind, with curiosity, with in the person's life and how they think about things and this, this sort of person-centered approach, it doesn't take longer. It works better. And you go home at the end of the day still tired probably, but nonetheless with, with, this, with this feeling of having met interesting people and and learned things from them, you know, so that that mind of curiosity that that you observe in me is also the same thing that I have done with clients that i'm I'm interested in them. I'm interested in in what they think about where they are and and where they're headed. And I don't feel like i I have solutions to install into them. I have ideas. I can I'm happy to share those, but but it really is up to the person to to find their path of recovery, and I'm very willing to help with that. Uh, but I've found that prescribing it uh, necessarily work very well. I, I love that. Um, I love the phrase "installing solutions" because <laughs> that's. So I've experienced like. Um, some supervisors that are really in tune to motivational interviewing and working with clients and have that that MI spirit we talk about, you know, this idea that, hey, I want to learn about this person. This person is the expert on themselves, and I don't need to install solutions into them. I mean, just hearing you yeah. speak, what you just said is like, if I'm a beginning counselor, I'm hearing that, I'm like, it's actually a relief, it's actually a relief to hear what you said. Yeah. I mean, not, not only does it work better, it's more fun, you know. You, yeah. <laughs> you enjoy it. If I were doing research now, uh, I'd be interested in how learning motivational interviewing changes practitioners because I've heard so many stories like that, that I was on the edge of burnout and then I found this and it's completely changed the way I feel about work and I love what I'm doing. Uh just learning listening itself had a profound effect in my life. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'd love to know more about that because I, I hear the anecdotes so often. But I think we don't really have any science on, on how this affects the practitioner. But one thing I would bet on is, is diminished burnout and greater sense of 
of gratitude uh, and commit the work that we're doing. Wow, wow. And to think of, um, you know, a lot of our workshops and training, a lot of stuff out there is about compassion fatigue. And obviously, I think learning practical tools and strategies to manage your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems are definitely definitely worth it. and then we trace it back or, or we go back to this idea that maybe we could add that, but then maybe we could engage with the client in a conversational style that's potentially like interesting for the clinician and that they're using the client as the expert to help them uncover what they need to do. Well, the way you comport yourself in, in a person-centered approach or in, in motivational interviewing, you send signals to the client that we're not opponents. Uh, you know, we're not adversaries here. The collaborative itself reduces uh, limbic arousal and I think makes it more possible to hear what you're doing. So it's something that I think reduces that negative affect for both people in the room. Uh, and that's a, that's a good thing. We're, you don't help people get better by making them feel bad. Uh, we've had that kind of odd idea in America that if you can just make people feel terrible enough about themselves, then they'll change. Uh, and it's not true. And, and Rogers maintained exactly the opposite of that. That it's when you it's being accepted as you are, it becomes possible to change. And when you're getting the message that you're unacceptable, you're kind of paralyzed. It's difficult to change. Yeah. And so that that conveying of acceptance through a person-centered approach or commitment therapy or motivation viewing, whatever it is, I think is a very important element of working in this field. So this guy, Bill Miller, stumbled into something that just might work with evoking change-talking people, even the most resistant people. All right, I get it, I get it. But who influenced him? It's a man I never met. Really? Carl, Carl Rogers. Yeah. I mean, his, his work has had more influence on how I think about uh, my work and how I live my life than anybody else. Now, I've, I had wonderful mentors along the way and learned a lot from them. But if I have to single out one person, it's Rogers. Uh, about eight percent of what we do in motivational interviewing is right out of Carl Rogers. And the more I read of his work, the more I know this is a man who was way ahead of his time. Um, lots of wisdom in there. He's not necessarily easy to read. And part of what I've been trying to do, uh, and Tom Gordon tried to do also, to convey his wisdom in an accessible way to people who can use it. So can, like, Bill Miller still get fired up about the addictions field? After spending 44 years in it, wouldn't have his candle burned out a long time ago? Or would he be affected on not only a professional level, but a personal level by motivational interviewing? And maybe even fall in love with the ideas of listening, reflecting, and evoking, and realizing that maybe everyone could be their own change agent. 
What are you What are you most fired up about in terms of like the addiction field and kind of where it's headed? Because obviously you've seen its evolution over forty some years. Um, what are you fired up about in terms of where the field's going? Well, first of all, when you do follow up research, you see how well people are doing. And you don't have that privilege in ordinary practice where you don't get information about how to do it. But in all the follow-up clinical trials that we did, we tried to see 100% of the people who had been through our clinic. Uh, and most of them are doing really well. And, and so contrary to public opinion and sometimes professional opinion, outcomes are good in this field. If you have to have a chronic illness, pick addiction because it's very treatable. Uh, and and so that's something that that I, you know I know change is possible, and we have a very nice menu of different ways of helping people. Uh, and I think rather than prescribing one, saying to people here menu, you know what what would you like? What do you think on this menu might work for you? You know so that which is what we do in, the, in a lot of medicine. It, it, you know, come in to see a, an oncologist with a cancer, and that's a responsible person, they'll say, well, there are actually several different ways we can go about dealing with this, and here they are, and let's discuss them and see what you think. And we haven't done much of that in addiction treatment, but I'm excited about it. And then I think the mainstreaming of addiction treatment, because we've, we have made addiction treatment an isolated ghetto. I mean, our, our addiction treatment, even here, run by the University of New Mexico hospitals is not located at the University of New Mexico hospitals. It's in a warehouse district out by the airport. Why is that? Well, we want those people around our hospital. They're already at the hospital. (laughs) They're already being seen for all kinds of care. And people in addiction treatment need care for mental health issues, need care for medical issues. They have lots of other things they're dealing with. Uh, Can come Disorders is a norm. It's not a small subpopulation. And so integrated treatment, first of all, makes sense. And then making it available right where you see your doctor and having a behavioral health person available in the doctor's office uh, makes a lot of sense. When you try to refer somebody to a highly stigmatized addiction treatment center out by the airport, getting them there. Yeah. The doctor can walk into the hall to talk somebody who listens to you and has ideas that might be helpful that kind of work a whole lot better. So would Bill just check out of the field at some point and retire after 44 years? Or would he maybe keep reading and writing some books of his own? Some related to motivational interviewing and some not. And maybe he would even keep sharing his knowledge with other therapists. Still writing books. I can't seem to kick that habit. So I'm uh, working on a second edition of Treating Addiction, our, our uh, textbook for professionals, which, which is the book I wished I had when I was teaching because I could never find a textbook I liked Yeah, um, that, that had, had what I wanted. And so I wrote it after I retired. Um, and it, it's done well, so we're working on updating that one now. And I've, I've been writing some books for more general audiences, I think. I wrote a, a kind of piece with my daughter, whom we adopted when she was eight years old. And it's the story of adoption, but we start from our lives before the adoption happened. And so these two streams flow together, 
at the point of adoption and then flow apart as she goes on to live her own adult life and, and had an awful lot of abuse and, and suffering and struggling um, along the way. So I think that particularly for people that are interested in adoption or have experienced adoption, we were thinking, yeah, she, she wanted her story. And then I came up with this idea of taking writing alternate chapters and the story advances every other chapter for, for each of us. Um, the book I have coming out soon is called Loving Kindness, which which is a concept that cuts all the world's religions. It's called compassion, but being a behavioral person, my interest is in well, what do you actually do? And there there are very good books by Aaron Salzberg and others on meditations on this the inner journey of of um, loving kindness and compassion. Um, but I wanted to say, what, what does this look like in practice? And if you want to become a more loving person, what do you actually do? You know, so, so I was, I was just moved to, because it is such a, a central value in my own faith. And, uh, and then I think the next one I'm going to be doing is a book on listening. Not not for professionals uh, necessarily, but just on this skill that you don't automatically develop. But that is such a gift that you have to give to other people once you develop that skill. Awesome, awesome. So really, kind of you're kind of really branching out, and I like this idea of uh, loving kindness and really trying to almost like what you did with motivational interviewing and like putting that t- together is like begin to kind of look at how exactly do you teach it? How exactly does it break down so that you can actually begin to kind of like quantify it? Not completely, but quantify it enough to be able to teach, to help people out, to better learn it. And I mean, in a way, loving kindness is, is what we call the MI spirit, but sort of at a, at a bigger level uh, in, as a value in your life in general. Uh, so it, it, this is still linked to the work that I've been doing. And I didn't realize that the autobiographical book was, in a way, uh, but I sent it to a. And when he wrote back, he said, now I understand where motivational interviewing came from. Which was a, uh, what an interesting comment. You know, and, then, and yeah, I mean, going through difficult times kind of changes you as well. With so many people dying from opiate-related overdose deaths these days, I'm sure Bill might have something to say about this. Can motivational interviewing work with this population? Or is it just for people struggling with alcohol? Or is addiction addiction? Do you have any uh, thoughts on, you know, we're going kind of going through this, not kind of, we are going through like an opiate epidemic right now across the country with a lot of people losing their lives to it, a lot of people getting hooked, struggling to get in recovery, struggling to kind of change their lives for the better. Um, what's your thoughts on kind of what's going on in terms of uh, the epidemic and the treatment world's response to it? If you have any, I know it's totally off the cuff, putting you on the spot stuff. Well, I mean, drug of choice is over time uh, in the field. It was pretty, still is predominantly alcohol and tobacco that uh, that kill people and, and create suffering, and disability, and so forth. 
but there there are areas and times when uh, cocaine was deal and uh, methamphetamine uh, epidemics pop up here and there, um, and now opiates. Um, so the the drug changes, but fundamentally, I think it's still the same phenomenon. And even behavioral addictions like gambling, you know, as when I, one of the first gambling groups that we were offering, I wasn't sure what that experience would be like, but I wasn't far into it before I began to feel like I, I know this territory. This, this, is, this is familiar territory. So I, I think addiction is a larger process, and the way in which it manifests is influenced by what drugs are around and how much they cost and things like that. And indeed, you do you have different pharmacotherapies depending on the particular drug that's involved. Um, but the process is the same, and it's it's a human process, and it, it's it's human. It's kind of built into us uh, to get too attached to things uh, and put them in the center of our life when they don't belong in the center of our life. In, in ancient Judaism, it's, it's called idolatry. To, to take something that doesn't deserve sacred priority and to give it sacred priority, to make that the central thing in your life. And in a way, that's what the process of dependence is, that, that gradually a drug or an or a addictive behavior is relationships and other things that you enjoyed and have given you meaning in life, and it becomes the most important and urgent thing. So it's not a strange phenomenon. Um, it's just a kind of different different thing on the throne with uh, with opiates but uh, but I think the process is still pretty much the same so I get the whole motivational interviewing thing but do you have any real guidance for someone like me a healthcare professional I mean I'm not like planning on dealing with anyone with an addiction so why even bother if you're a physician or you're a psychologist or a social worker you know Addiction is this thing you refer out to a specialist program somewhere. And often, you know, I was taught nothing. Uh, I had to learn it myself uh, about addiction, which is silly in, in psychological training. Uh, and so I think a first, the first message is this is part of our job. That, that as, as the unit told me in 73, this is the second most common thing you'll see in your life. Uh, Depressions first uh, in prevalence, and then then you're into substance use disorders, um, and and so think of it as part of your regular job. People to a specialist program isn't necessarily the best thing in the world because what's being done in many specialist programs isn't terribly science based, and you already know a lot of what you need, and and what's missing is what we put in that book. So we didn't write that for addiction counselors necessarily. We wrote it for health professionals uh, saying, this is part of your job and here's what you need to know to make this part of your job, to treat this as part of your, your regular work. So I think that's the main message. That don't think of this as a, as a separate strange thing that has to have the inner coven of of secret providers. Yeah. <laughs> That's totally it's it. It's human nature, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's what we seeing these folks anyhow in practice, even if you don't know it. 
if you're in primary care or if you're a psychologist or a social worker or, or you work at the, at the welfare office and you're seeing people all the time who are struggling with an impaired uh, addictions and, and it's part of our job. And, and you know a lot of what you need to know already um, and what you need to learn in addition to that is learnable. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that, Bill. I mean, I, I think about the idea of listening and just being able to begin to ask some questions. And what I've discovered, even with my training in the addiction field, is my clients have been my greatest teachers. They, they will tell you what you need to know. <laughs> so what would Bill Miller say to someone struggling with an opiate addiction? Would he tell them to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and stop hurting themselves and everyone around them? Or would he say maybe something slightly different and maybe even hopeful? Well, we're going to finish up with maybe our final question, which is, do you have, well, I have two questions left. I'm always trying to get one more in, Bill. That's just kind of my nature. But my first question is, if somebody out there is listening that's addicted, because we have like other podcasts that are just talking, people talk, that are in recovery, how they turned the corner, how they faced, you know, obstacles, the rock bottom, got their lives on track, they might stumble into this recording, say, hey, I want to listen. I heard about this guy. So if that person happens to be listening, what would what would you like to say to them? So maybe it's a person that, they're addicted to opiates. They're thinking about getting help. Um, they've been kind of on this process the last couple of months, which is typically the story I hear. I'm thinking about it. I think I should do something about this. This is is getting out of control. What would be? Uh, what would you like to say to those people? Well, the really two messages that I mentioned before. I mean, one is that that the prognosis is good. That, that change <laughs> is possible. It. Most people get better, you know. I mean, that's what that's what we see in in research. And so, uh, you know, stick with it and and uh, you know keep keep trying, keep moving forward. Uh, and by the way, perfection is a, is an odd standard. I'm going to say three things, I guess. So this is number two. First one is don't expect perfection. We've had this odd idea that uh, the, the outcome of a short treatment phase should be the person that uses again. Uh, now, we don't, we don't apply that kind of perfect treating diabetes, in treating asthma, in treating hypertension, in treating chronic diseases. If, if a person comes into the emergency room in a hypoglycemic shock because of diabetes, we don't say, you relapsed. You know? We don't use that concept. Uh, relapse is a blaming idea and a misleading idea because actually the way recovery usually happens is longer and longer spans of time, usually abstinence, longer and longer spans of and shorter and shorter periods of use that are less and less severe over time. And, and that's what good treatment looks like in treating a chronic illness as well. Uh, so don't get stuck on perfection. You know, don't... don't uh, you know, beat yourself up that you're not perfect in this. It's continuing to move forward, getting longer spans of recovery. If you have a, a period of falling out of recovery, it's just behavior, just using, 
that doesn't have to continue. We saw lots of people who, who had a couple of drinks after years of sobriety, and then the next day a couple of drinks, and then said, "This is dumb. What am I doing this for?" You know, and, and went back to who we had. So change is possible. Um, don't expect absolute perfection because we're we're not perfect people. And there's a whole menu of different ways of of recovering. Uh, there's not just one way. It's been common in our field to say this is what you have to do. You got to do a 12-step program. That's the only way. Or cognitive behavior therapy is the only thing that works. Or you know whatever it is. It's not true. We have a great menu of different things. And if you tried something and it hasn't worked for you and hasn't done what you wanted, try something else. Don't try another course of the same thing. If you have a cancer and you're trying radiation and it's not producing, it's not saving your life, you'll try something different, not more of the same thing typically. Uh, so I think those three messages, change is possible. Um, perfection is not even norm. Don't affect perfection. And there are lots of ways that people move toward recovery. And Anne Fletcher has a wonderful book called Sober for Good, where she interviewed people that are in recovery and how they did it. And, and variation is sort of the message. They're just all over the map in what they found to get you recovery. But I have not read that book, but I am definitely going to go get it. So it's by Anne Fletcher. Yeah, Anne Fletcher, very, very popular. Well, well, Bill, we want to thank you for taking time out of your day to spend with us here. And um, any closing words? Um, well, I you know, enjoyed the conversation. I hope that something of what we talked about will be helpful to folks who are here. All right. With that, we salute you. Thank you. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thanks again to Dr. William R. Miller for sharing his time with us this week. This episode featured music by Lovely Socialite, Patrick Reinholtz, and me, John Procruzzi. If you like what you heard, consider subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. It really helps. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for more free resources. Thanks for listening.